The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, when we talk about the words public diplomacy, uh, a lot of people are kind of confused about what that actually is. But in the diplomatic world and in international relations, it's a very important concept. And basically, it's when governments in, in the form of embassies mostly uh, do their outreach to all the various stakeholders uh, in their kind of designated territory. And so particularly for the Chinese in Africa, this is a very, very interesting issue because you run into a lot of people who complain about the inability, the incompetence, the ineptitude, I mean, all of the different things that we've talked about, about how the Chinese embassies around Africa communicate with various stakeholders or don't communicate. And it really brings the question as to what is the thought process behind China's public diplomacy strategy in Africa? And that's what we're going to be focusing on today. And there's this adjunct to public diplomacy, which is soft power. And again, soft power is that concept that basically says that it's the opposite of hard power, which is guns and military, and getting persuading people to do things that through culture and media, and in some senses, public diplomacy. So, Kobus, we're in that space of getting people to do things through the power of persuasion, and that seems to be, up until now at least, a real challenge for the Chinese in Africa. We have to keep in mind that there are lots and lots of different competing public diplomacy initiatives operating in the world and in Africa. So, you know, the, the United States, the U United Kingdom, France, they all have very robust public diplomacy programs. Um, and they, to a certain extent, set up the template for how public, public diplomacy is done. You know, so something like, like using language teaching, for example, as a form of public diplomacy. That's, you know, we, we've discussed that in terms of the Confucius institutes. But of course, France has been doing that for centuries, so has, so has uh, the UK. Um, so, you know, so there's a set of traditional public diplomacy tools, a set of new ones, including stuff like social media engagement. And to a certain extent, China is playing catch-up with, with these other powers in Africa um, because just also public diplomacy wasn't ever really the public the, the Chinese government's strong suit. Um, and so they're, they're, they're kind of playing on a playing field that's a little bit unfamiliar to them. And it's unfamiliar in part because in China, the government itself does not have uh, precedent or the experience of engaging with, say, civil society stakeholders. They're not accountable the same way that, say, U.S. and European governments are. So there is a learning curve that's there. But also, I want to kind of bring in one other point here that might be something that we consider in our discussion. Maybe we're looking at this from the wrong way. So we're measuring, as you said, against what the U.S. and the Europeans have been doing, but they might be playing by a totally different set of rules. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And for that, we are so thrilled to have on the show uh, Cliff Mboya, who is uh, originally from Kenya, but doing his Ph.D. at uh, Fudan University in the International Politics uh, in the School of International Relations and Public Affairs at Fudan in Shanghai. I had the opportunity to have lunch with Cliff 
a few months ago. And when we were having our conversation, I just couldn't wait to get him on the show, in part because he is not just a scholar, but from 2011 to 2017, before he joined uh, Fudan University in their doctorate program, he was a, a public affairs and information officer at the Chinese embassy in Nairobi. So, Cliff, uh, you are back in Nairobi, enjoying the summer months, and we are so happy to have you on the show today, and welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Kovas and uh, Eric. I'm glad to be here on the show. So, you are doing your PhD on Chinese public diplomacy and the and trying to kind of explain and study the way that they do it in Kenya specifically. You've worked inside the embassy for, for six years. At the top of the show, I laid out... Uh, basically two different parameters here. One is that the Chinese are really terrible at public diplomacy, and that is the perception that a lot of people have. They don't engage well with the media. They don't generally engage well with non-governmental organizations. They're very, very secretive. It's very difficult to get information out of embassies. Even Chinese nationals overseas complain that the embassies don't support them very well. Now, the other side of that is maybe the fact is that the Chinese are playing by a different set of rules and they have a different set of expectations and they're doing public diplomacy the way that meets them and their needs. Give us a little bit of a sense of where you think it falls down on in that discussion and how you would characterize Chinese public diplomacy in Africa. Well, uh, I think it falls a bit on both sides because uh, China is a newcomer in public diplomacy. And uh, there's a lot of influence, especially in Africa from the West, and China being a newcomer, they have to contend with a lot of uh, an image that was already put into play that they have to counter. And then also that negative perception has been there for a very long time and it will take a while before they try to turn that around. But talking about access to information, the way they conduct their public diplomacy, I usually tell people that uh, from my experience and from my research, I think China is uh, undergoing what I call cautious reforms. They are slowly learning. And as, as much as they did terribly in the past, I can see that with the time, they are learning slowly, reforming slowly, and uh, they are catching up very quickly. But uh, also there are those traditional stuff that are a bit difficult to, to do away with, but uh, they're making progress. Um, can you give us an idea of having spent time you know, working in that environment, uh, how do they um, see public diplomacy? Like, like how, how, how do they see their public diplomacy mission in Africa? What do they want to try and, and communicate and what kind of perceptions are they trying to change? Well, uh, I think China has grown uh, significantly and has become a very important player in international politics at the moment. And with that comes the need to engage more, especially with African countries. But then looking at China, their public diplomacy is state-led, otherwise uh, top-down approach, which has been criticized. And uh, that has been China's traditional approach. And in the beginning, you saw the state's hand in China's public diplomacy and you know the bureaucracy around it made it very difficult to to adjust to the public diplomacy environment that we are used to especially I'll call it the western style public diplomacy where you have agents all over you have NGOs 
you have the civil society working together with the public diplomats you have uh, media cooperating with each other but then when it comes to china side you see first of all there is the negative perception that is in place there is the there's a suspicion and then there's this perception that uh, you know it's, it's purely propaganda and so everyone engages with uh, china cautiously but a lot of strides have been made when i joined the embassy in the year mm-hmm. 2011 First of all one of my job was to monitor the media and every day you will get negative news on the media but over time with the what I call the cautious reforms they tried they began to open up more you'll see diplomats engaging with the media sharing their contacts the journalists will call to verify information but then I won't say it is to the extent to which other like western embassies do but over time i have seen some reforms and i've seen a greater engagement with the media and and things like that and also the embassy has also gone out to try and push chinese companies uh, tourists and uh, other chinese nationals who are in the country to try and because you know image is a big issue and uh, due to a lot of criticisms and advice and things like that we've seen that they are trying to adapt some of these values for public to diplomacy just to make some headway into into the continent and Kenya specifically yeah it's interesting that you say that they uh, recognize that they have a problem in terms of their public perception and and because we don't always on the outside looking in know that you know and i know from our interactions with chinese scholars and even the chinese government Uh, officials have have spoken to us saying that they are not happy with the way that they are portrayed and that they are characterized in African media and particularly by what in, they're incensed by a lot of the western and US led narratives like debt trap diplomacy and things like that and they don't really have the ability and the decision making kind of chains of command to quickly respond to that and so for example as you talked about which is this very hierarchical top down and that's not just in the chinese government that's also in chinese corporations and in lots of organizations where decisions are made at the very very top so a lot of problems happen in africa when a journalist comes to an embassy and says i'd like you to comment or i'd like to interview a, an official they have to go back to beijing get the permission from beijing and then it circles back and by that time the story has moved on i want to ask you a little bit about uh two ambassadors in particular so ambassador wu peng who is the relatively new Chinese ambassador to Kenya and then ambassador Lin Songtian in Pretoria. Both of these ambassadors really represent a new generation or a new style of Chinese public diplomacy in the fact that they are almost like retail politicians. They are on social media, they speak the language very well, they're out there, they're not shy to engage. We did a show with ambassador Uh, talking about ambassador Lin Songtian and how he was doing live TV press conferences in Johannesburg. I mean that is unprecedented in Chinese politics to do that. Are those two ambassadors in your opinion outliers or do they represent some of the reforms that you're talking about that are taking place in places like the Chinese embassy in Nairobi? I don't think they're outliers. I think they represent a new strategy. because this is not only happening at the embassy and uh, even before these new ambassadors came to serve 
already this kind of reforms were in the process. Before I left for Shanghai, there was a lot of discussion, a lot of collaboration. There were deliberate efforts to encourage more engagement, but also one challenge that was noted was, first of all, we need the uh, uh, what are they called? Public affairs officials in all Chinese companies. They were encouraged to to employ or or bring people who can speak English and who can engage the media and engage the public. So they were being encouraged. And I remember at one point we encouraged the editors to share contacts with the Chinese managers and the new appointed uh, public affairs manager so that they can interact and share information freely because in the beginning you'll find that whenever a crisis happened then the embassy will have to intervene on behalf of Chinese companies but then at some point Chinese companies were expected to deal directly and I've seen that uh, even in the Kenyan media I've seen Chinese managers doing interviews in the media but then these are like when I came to do my field work and even right now I'm doing some follow-up interviews, I speak with some of them, but they still complain, but sometimes when they open up and give information, once it comes out from the media, there's always a negative connotation to it. But, you know, the media culture here is, uh, they tend to look for the negative aspects. So sometimes you give your side of the story, but they'll think a few negative incidents and reports. So. That one uh, still is a worry for Chinese managers, but I think continuous engagement and uh, they don't need to be afraid. With time, these issues can be resolved so long as they're in contact with each other and they engage openly, these issues can be addressed. One of the, the new tools um, that we've seen in Chinese public diplomacy over the last two or three years has been a close collaboration with big companies like like Star Times, for example, the satellite TV provider, to provide low-cost rollouts of, of um, satellite TV to, to neighborhoods that where people would usually not be able to afford it, to provide it at quite low cost, and then, you know, in the process, expand Star Times' as business, because, you know, they do get money from subscri- subscriptions, but at the same time, to provide a lot of Chinese media, um, frequently dubbed into African languages, you know, essentially for free to, to lots of these, these companies. Um, I mean, to lots of these communities. Um, how do the people within the embassy see the collaboration with these companies? Like, how, how does it work from the embassy side? Well, if I remember correctly, this, uh, this was encouraged because, you know, we had a very big problem, especially in Kenya during the digital uh, migration period, because the major media houses were reluctant and uh, it had been postponed severally. But uh, I'm, uh, I'm not sure how the discussions went with the government, but I think this came as a result of uh, also discussions with government. And I think the Chinese embassy was very, uh, they really encouraged the Star Times to, to go for, to go for this uh, deal because uh, uh, you remember we had several Chinese companies bidding for this, but then once the market was open, I think that time uh, they managed to come out in a strong way and uh, Kenyans were very positive about it because of the low cost, because previously we relied on, 
on uh, we had uh, DSTV which has been here for some time focusing on sports but then it was very costly for majority of Kenyans so when start times came in the price was low and uh, you know the service they will install they'll just come to your house they'll do everything for you you'll just sit there get your box they'll do the installation and once they leave you are you're good to go so it was positive and now we see it has it facilitated the digital migration and there was a lot of support from the from the embassy at the time support for this podcast comes from the africa channel reporting project at wits university school of journalism in johannesburg the acrp provides reporting grants workshops and other professional development opportunities for both african and chinese journalists follow the acrp on twitter at Bits China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. So, there is this assumption that the Chinese struggle with public diplomacy and it's something that they're not very good at. But it, it's kind of interesting because when you talk with other governments, uh, they too have very similar complaints. And again, I think a lot of Americans in particular oftentimes confuse soft power messaging. So they'll say they'll see a lot of people in Africa who like Beyonce, who go to McDonald's, who want to have an iPhone, who like American products and or watch American television. And yet they will confuse that with American policy or American government. So our culture is very very strong, but we're not necessarily that competent at public diplomacy and outreach either. And a lot of American people American officials We'll say that to you. In Cobus, we even had, uh, you, you know, we had a guest on from the U.S. Army War College and who said that, believe it or not, um, he doesn't think that Americans are very good at public diplomacy and outreach, particularly in the Trump administration now communicating what they want and what they want to do. And I guess, Cliff, I'm curious from your point of view, as somebody who is thinking about public diplomacy from the Chinese, do you see that the French, the British, the Americans, the Japanese, are they better it's hard to say who's better because if you compare Chinese public diplomacy and uh, the West, first of all, the strategies are very different. But then I think the West has an, a historical advantage, a language advantage and things like that. But then when it comes to strategy and the impact, I think, well, China lags behind on some aspects when, when you talk about culture. I think still uh, Western culture language, Western values are still more attractive because that is what most Africans are used to. But then China is very strong on economic diplomacy and I think economic diplomacy is China's priority. And uh, for me, basically, I believe in, because this is what most Chinese diplomats and managers say, they say actions speak uh, louder than words. So they want to focus on their competitive advantage, which is economic, they want to build schools that people can see and feel. You know, they want to build roads and railways that uh, whether you like them or not, you will appreciate the roads and the railways. Well, uh, when you go to the West, then you know, they have civil societies, they talk of democracy, they talk of uh, human rights and things like that. But then when you see these things with your eyes, because, you know, when it comes to those values, they can be debatable, but you cannot debate 
about okay we have issues with the SGR people are talking about corruption and debt trap and all those things but those you know they remain on the narrative side but then when it comes to the value even a person who doesn't like China as a country will appreciate the fact that they can travel within four hours they can leave Nairobi in the morning and be in Mombasa by lunchtime and have lunch with their friends and come back to Nairobi and have dinner with their family so I think uh, those are different strategies with uh, different targets. And then China being a newcomer, I think it's important for them to to prioritize on the economic aspects because that is where their strength is as they try and build their cultural and political profile, which will take some time. Yeah, it's very interesting that you say that. Now, I completely see your point um, that, you know, that, that these these infrastructure projects frequently speak louder than than other forms of, of public diplomacy um, how like do, do you think that the Chinese embassy is generally happy with following that that um, procedure or is it kind of a, a situation where that's kind of their only option do are, are they do, do you foresee that they will get bigger traction as time goes on by using things like pop culture as well because you know um, just going back to the Star Times example one of the things that Star Times does does is to dub quite a lot of Chinese pop culture into local African languages, um, and you know a lot of that is provided at, at low cost. Do you do you foresee those kind of initiatives gaining some traction in the future? Yes, I think they will. And um, I spent some time going through. I was trying to compare speeches by the previous ambassadors who left, and I noticed that uh, there's a a change in narrative because uh, they emphasize the importance of uh, cultural diplomacy and uh, things like pop culture but then they real they realize their shortcomings because when it comes to those areas china still cannot compete for example with the us so it's a matter of priority but it doesn't mean that these are less important to china i think especially for kenya we've seen that there's a lot of interest in in a Chinese language, uh, I've been visiting Confucius Institute. The demand is very high, though. Uh, mostly, the students are attracted by, you know, they need to find jobs from Chinese companies and, and things like that. So I'm trying to establish whether it's the jobs or it's the attractiveness of the culture and things like that. But I think generally, from my analysis. Chinese culture, things like pop culture, music, uh, they're still not uh, very attractive here, though it's still a priority for for the diplomats and the other agencies. So I think uh, it will still be a major factor for China's public diplomacy. So in Kenya, the Chinese uh, run into a lot of public perception problems. Uh, People are very, very negative about China in terms of the standard gauge railway, the concerns about debt, uh, allegations and reports of racism and discrimination on the SGR, the wildlife trade. I mean, there's just a lot of issues. As you pointed out, Kenyan media is often very negative. Uh, Uru Kenyatta oftentimes is conflated with the Chinese because he's so close uh, with with in terms of his agenda being financed a lot of it by the Chinese taxes on fuel have been going up and people say well that's to pay off the debt uh, mismanagement of some of the funds the lack of transparency on the debt and the deals and whatnot I mean I could go on for the next twenty minutes what do you think that the embassy 
and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And if you, once you are Dr. Mboya, they will probably invite you to come in and sit down with them and say, Dr. Mboya, please tell us, what do you think we should do to remedy some of this and to change that narrative, that very distinctively negative narrative that is so prevalent in Kenya about the Chinese? What would you advise them in terms of how to improve their overall image? First of all, I think uh, they need to engage more. There's uh, a lot of uh, misunderstanding, miscommunication, and also exaggeration to some extent. Because uh, I've I've seen a lot of surveys, and I'm conducting my own survey at the moment. Uh, The perception amongst ordinary people on the street is not necessarily that negative. But when you look at uh, media articles and media reports, then you will think it's probably it's uh, it's toxic. But it's not it's not that bad from my analysis because um, you know problem most people only get information about China, the activities and everything from the media. And as I mentioned earlier, our culture is you know like the. The neg- negative news sells, you know. So it's very rare that they'll publish uh, things like, oh, this Chinese companies uh, built two schools in this place, it's very, unless you pay for that. But ordinarily, when you go to the news section, it will mostly be negative news. But from some several surveys I've, uh, I've looked at, uh, Pew Survey, the China House did a survey earlier, uh, Ipsos did some survey. It's not, it's not that bad. So I, I don't think I think what China should do is to engage more. Uh, I think uh, they have made some progress in terms of media cooperation, but there's still a lot of suspicion, and uh, I don't know to what extent that kind of cooperation that was established between manager Chinese managers and uh, media editors. I don't know how far it went because I know. Also, sometimes when you attend press conferences with the Chinese media or Chinese diplomats, sometimes they'll only want to speak about the things they want to speak about and avoid those uh, critical issues that people want uh, to be addressed. But that brings me the point to the new ambassador, and uh, this didn't get me better. I think he's more open, and I think they have taken up the challenge. He speaks openly, and uh, he tries to address things up. I think if Chinese managers uh, took a cue from him, then I think they will make a lot of progress because, you know, it's better to have facts out there that uh, editors, journalists, and also ordinary people can rely on to make judgment because, you know, the negative perception still uh, is still there. So I think Chinese, China and uh, diplomats and Chinese diplomacy generally will be judged harshly compared to other countries because of the ingrained perception that has been there over time. So I'll advise them to engage more and uh, collaborate more because uh, uh, I think I've mentioned before that uh, it's easier to to listen to a person that you feel close to, a person that you trust. So I think they have done well so far. We see a lot of uh, locals, I call it localization, have more African managers or African managers in Chinese companies. You can have, uh, they could engage PR companies to do the PR work or their communication work because they understand the terrain. 
you know they understand the issues that Kenyans are concerned about and uh, so I think that will be key for their public diplomacy for now going forward. Um, if I wonder if I could for a moment just take a, a devil's advocate position. How, you know, what would you say to someone who, who says that maybe Chinese public diplomacy is not so important in Africa, that what actually matters is economic engagement, you know, that what counts in the end are things like, like infrastructure, and that maybe the Chinese shouldn't care whether they're popular or not. Because they're doing business, a lot of business there anyway. Like, what, what, how, how do you counter that kind of uh, perception? Well, I think uh, as much as the Chinese have an advantage when it comes to economic diplomacy, it doesn't mean that uh, the other actors are not able to do. Maybe they can't do the stuff they do to the extent they do, but they can do the same thing. So at the end of the day, it's. You know, you don't just put money somewhere. There's a narrative that goes with the investment and the infrastructure projects and things like that. And one of the challenges uh, China is experiencing right now, as much as they're building infrastructure and everything, there's always the, you know, the critical aspects, especially by Western media and uh, Western interests. You know, the debt trap uh, narrative, those are the challenges. So that shows how important public diplomacy is. You might build all the roads, all the railways, but when they come with a negative narrative, then, then the investment doesn't mean anything on the ground. Cliff Mboya is a PhD candidate in international politics in the School of International Relations and Public Affairs at Fudan University in Shanghai. Prior to coming to Shanghai, he was for six years an information and public affairs officer at the Chinese embassy in Nairobi. And what a treat for us to get an inside view of what the embassy uh, thinks and how they engage in public diplomacy. And Cliff, we are so excited to be able to have this dialogue with you because we would like to hear more about your research and to track some of the reforms that you've been talking about and to see, again, if you know if the Chinese are, are going to become more sophisticated in their public diplomacy and their stakeholder outreach. So I think that was the, that's a very interesting thing to watch. If people want to stay in touch with you or connect with you, uh, what's the best way for them to, to follow you? The best platform is my Twitter account. What's your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle is at Clifford, C-L-I number 40H. Okay, well, we'll have a link to Cliff's Twitter handle in the show notes and on the page and, uh, and make it very easy for people to follow you and see what you're reading and writing these days. Cliff, good luck with the rest of your program at Fudan. Enjoy the rest of your summer in Nairobi, and we are so grateful that you took the time to join us. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Eric and Kobas. It was nice having you as well. Kobas, I think the most interesting takeaway for me in this discussion was when Cliff pointed out the fact that the view among many Kenyans is not anywhere near as negative as the view in the press. And I think that's the case in many African countries. Of course, there's no science to back that up. Uh, but at the end of the day, just anecdotally, I think there is a discrepancy oftentimes between African public opinion and African media opinion, which sometimes are not always aligned. So for outsiders, they will just make judgments about the Chinese perceptions or perceptions of the Chinese in places like Kenya based on media reporting and media coverage. And that can be slightly distortive. So I think that is something uh, something to pay attention to. And I think that was very interesting observation from uh, from Cliff. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is this links to complaints that the that Chinese authorities have had for a long time about Western uh, media practice. 
and that that leads to a kind of combative form of reporting. And that's one of the reasons why they they frequently push kind of cooperative or developmental journalism, you know, as as a counterpoint. And and that has actually has has gotten some traction in some African countries. Um, you know, the, the 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 media culture in Africa is is very influenced by um, by Western ideas of of what the media should do. So that includes the media having to be critical and the media having to be a kind of a watchdog. Um, you know, so with that comes perhaps you know over overly critical kind of accounts. And so we we can one can see why Chinese embassies would be upset by that, not only for their own personal messaging, but also because they don't really come from a culture like that. So I want the timing of our discussion with Cliff this week is interesting because Aubrey Ruby, who's the Washington, D.C. senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, we've had her on the show before, a big thinker in in African uh, politics in the United States, uh, came out with a piece in foreign policy uh, in Africa, China is the news, a really, really interesting article. Go to foreignpolicy.com. And one of the things that she points out is the fact that the Chinese are using vastly different tools to advance their their narrative in Africa, tools that I think a lot of people in the West would not necessarily understand. So there is a flooding of the market in Africa on African media of Chinese content from state or party-controlled media entities, and you'll see this all over the place. Stories about China that are that look to be written by sites like Ghana Web or other sites or independent online in South Africa, but in fact are Xinhua. And now they give away Xinhua for free uh, with the hope that, well, people will, will publish it. Now, 90% of Xinhua is just boring international news, the same stuff that you get on AP, on Reuters and whatnot. You know, so-and-so president and so-and-so president shook and, you know, made a deal or whatnot. But it's about 10%, and that's not a scientific number, is that Chinese messaging. And that is getting through. Now, a lot of people don't actually watch it or read it. But little by little, it kind of gets its way into the ecosystem. The other thing that uh, that I pointed out uh, in my discussions with Aubrey and with others on this issue is there. Like you talked about this as well with Start Times, the building out of media infrastructure. So it's not just Start Times that's building out satellite TV, but they're also converting television channels across the continent from analog to digital. They're building, uh, rebuilding. Uh, TV stations from the ground up like they did in Liberia at the Liberian Broadcasting Corporation. So one has to think that if you rebuild the Liberian Broadcasting Corporation channel, will LBC ever run a negative story about China on their news programs? Never. I don't know if I 100% agree. I mean, that, A, you know, yes, one would have to ask that question, but then, sorry to be the academic, but that, that would have to then be followed up by an actual media studies, you know, content analysis over 12 months. Content analysis yeah, I'm bringing old-world old common sense here right there that says if somebody gives you $20 million to rebuild your Maybe TV channel, you're not going to be talking about Xinjiang and Tibet and Hong Kong and all the other things. Maybe, but I mean, you know that that that's that still is an infrastructure deal, right? That doesn't necessarily come with editorial editorial control. So I, I you know, I'm I'm agnostic about this. I'd I'd have to actually see it, you know, reported or or, or researched to actually see whether which way they would go. It's an it's a fair point, okay. But again, I think the interesting thing is that they're doing things in the background that a lot of people aren't seeing that do produce a positive feeling and benefit. So that is, if you are living in Liberia and you couldn't get the signal from LBC and now you can, and the message is, well, China made that happen, that produces warm, fuzzy feelings. 
That is a form yeah, of, but, of soft power. But I, but I think, but, but, no, definitely, I agree with you. Um, but, but I think it, it is a, a larger kind of... Um, you know, support of 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 one of Cliff's points that that a lot of Chinese soft power does come from infrastructure provision. Um, you know, and the 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 digital migration from analog to digital, I think, is a great example of that. It's like very few very few Western companies were interested in in doing that work. Chinese companies were able to; they managed to get you know funding to do it, um, and they did it. And now they're getting this kind of soft power windfall from it. Um, so yeah, I think that 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 packaging of soft power provision or, or public diplomacy with with infrastructure, I think, is a very strong Chinese tool. In relation to the other the stuff like the you know the the Xinhua content, and um, I, I don't know that that's necessarily that unique because I mean you you know if you go through African newspapers, you also see USAID sponsored content. You know, you see stuff from you know Deutsche Welle comes from tax money in in Germany. You know, there's there's a lot there's a lot of these these kind of media, you know, public diplomacy, you know, mutant hybrid kind of initiatives in Africa in the African press generally. You know, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, space that needs to be filled and a lot of this kind of semi paid content filling it. So I think you know in there I, it seems to me that China's playing on a Western playbook. But the, the the provision of of actual like using this kind of media infrastructure and soft power combo that I think is 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 really is a, a kind of a new Chinese um, method in Africa and it seems to be working very well. And that really comes back to the earlier point that we made, which is to judge the Chinese effectiveness of soft power and public diplomacy in Africa, uh, purely against Western standards may be missing some very, very important criteria, the ones that Copas just talked about in terms of the infrastructure build-out. Of course, there is no better example of this than Huawei. Huawei built out what's reported to be 70% of Africa's 4G network it's building out a lot of the 5G. It's building out cloud data servers, and people know that that is a Chinese build-out. So there is a lot of, again, good feeling that comes from that, and the brand loyalty to Huawei in Africa is is su- surprisingly strong from the point of view of a lot of American policymakers who have been trying to persuade Africans to turn their backs on Huawei, and not a single African telecom operator or country has done so. In fact, Kenya's ICT minister came out and said, uh, yeah, thanks, America, we've got it. We're going to make decisions that are in our own interest. And, Kobus, you talked about your own president, Cyril Ramaphosa, who came out forcefully against the Americans on Huawei and called them jealous. And and yes. that is to me that is an extension of this this soft power infrastructure diplomacy that you've been talking about that they that these people are making choices in for their own national security and their national interests. Yeah, I think one one of the greatest soft power or public diplomacy um, victories I think that China has had so far has been the way that they managed to link partnership with Africa to the, the wider concept of African development. And that you really see in, in comments like President Ramaphosa's, where he was literally saying, well, Africa needs 5G and we know where to get it, you know, period. You know, it's, it's exactly, exactly. So, so that kind of thing of like, we need to move forward and the only people who are willing to help us to move forward are the Chinese. That's a very strong narrative. And I think the West... That's a narrative I think that Western countries are pretty weak, I think, at, at addressing, among others, because they frequently don't have the tools to actually to actually bring something to the table. So we will have Cliff's Twitter feed in our or Twitter handle in our show notes. He's a great person to follow on Twitter. He's following this stuff. He has experience and insights that few people have. 
We will also put a link to Aubrey Ruby's article, uh, In Africa, China is the News, where at the end of the article, she gives some recommendations on what U.S. policymakers can do to rival China's increasing soft power and public diplomacy initiatives. This is a very, very complex piece of the puzzle, and uh, it's something that I think is absolutely fascinating. We have not devoted enough attention to this issue, and we're hoping to uh, stay in touch with Cliff as he pursues his PhD and get some writing from him and get some more insights from him. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. If you want to stay in touch with us, the best way to do it is, of course, on our social media channels, which we'll have all the addresses for at the end of the show, but also uh, directly by email. Send us an email, eric at chinaafricaproject.com or cobus at chinaafricaproject.com. Uh, you can get to us, and that way there's we'll get back to you pretty quickly, usually within 24 to 48 hours. So uh, we're falling a little bit behind because of the volume of mail, but we really love hearing from you, even critics and haters. We like to hear, as long as you're respectful, no bad words, uh, no personal attacks, but we love to hear when people disagree with what we say, uh, as that just makes the show uh, that much stronger and makes us that much better. So we really appreciate all of the input that we get from you. And of course, if you want to hear from Cobus every Friday, he shares his insights in our weekly email newsletter that is free. Go to ChinaAfricaProject.com to sign up. Uh, another one is coming out on Friday with his insights. I won't ask you to tease us what you're thinking about putting in for the newsletter this week because everybody will have to wait to get it, but it will come out on Friday. It's a fantastic newsletter with a summary of the week's top China Africa news. And boy, there is a lot going on right now. So this is a newsletter you definitely want to get. So that'll do it. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. Project.com.